this is going to be a stain on this president and his presidency. And I think he's going to have blood on his hands for what they did. Almost as quickly as Kabul fell to the Taliban, the blame game in Washington began. And ultimately, it's up to the Afghans themselves. It's up to the Afghan government. It's up to the Taliban to decide the way forward for for the country, including uh, Kabul. Absolutely. Uh, President Biden bears responsibility for making this decision. He overruled his own military leaders to do it. Uh, But there is no question that President Trump, his administration, Secretary Pompeo, they also bear very significant responsibility for this. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, August 17th. In Kabul, a surge of U.S. troops have been able to regain control of the airport. Flights out have resumed. More than 700 Americans and American allies have been evacuated in the past 24 hours. But at least 10,000 U.S. citizens are still there. Meanwhile, the Taliban continue to consolidate control. The group's de facto leader returned to the country for the first time in more than a decade. They announced a general amnesty for government officials and interpreters. And they held a press conference. Uh, Women will be afforded all their rights, uh, whether it is in work or other activities, because women are a key part of society. And... uh, We are guaranteeing all their rights within the limits of Islam. A Taliban spokesperson claimed that women's rights would be protected. But there's still a deep unease and fear over whether they will keep any of these promises. Later in the show, we'll hear from the country's first female ambassador to the U.S., Roya Rahmani. Women are extremely worried. They are almost accepting that they won't have the same rights and liberties that they have been enjoying and building and claiming over the past 20 years. But first, we're talking to intelligence reporter Shane Harris about what President Biden actually knew about the likelihood that Afghanistan would fall to the Taliban and the whiplash, finger-pointing, and anger in Washington that has quickly followed. It is a mixture of outrage and recrimination. It is bipartisan. You've pretty much got every scapegoat covered from all of the different finger pointing, particularly from lawmakers, some people blaming President Biden, others blaming the intelligence community. You've got the White House essentially blaming the Afghanistan government. So no one's happy. All the scenes of total chaos that we saw play out on the TV yesterday could have been avoided if the administration had planned for this in advance. I mean, I am shocked. Everyone is watching the images of the collapse, the rapid collapse of Afghanistan, the swift campaign by the Taliban, and are looking for people to blame. So there's really no excuse for not doing this planning uh, for this evacuation and starting it sooner. What's also characterized this is that the critics kind of universally seem to agree that all of this was foreseeable and preventable. And I think to a certain degree, they have a point. So what is that consensus where people agree on how this evacuation went so wrong? 
the, the fingers point in different directions, but the overall critique and what I think people are probably getting right is that you know, while we may not have known precisely how quickly Afghanistan was likely to fall, it was always understood, I think for years, that it would fall quickly once U.S. forces left, that the Afghan military and the government were really not capable of sustaining themselves absent a U.S. presence, and particularly U.S. military presence in the country. And so what you're seeing in this kind of hasty retreat that the U.S. is beating is a real sense that, okay, hold on a second. If you knew that this was essentially going to happen relatively quickly, maybe you didn't know exactly how many days are on which date, why wasn't there more preparation made for getting Afghan personnel in particular out of the country, the people who helped us, and also setting up a kind of residual capability to do counterterrorism operations after we'd left. Now, the White House counters that, and they say they still can do those operations and that even some Afghans didn't want to leave. But in the midst of these scenes of chaos, you're hearing people say, this shouldn't have been surprising, and so why weren't we better prepared for this? So it seems like in the criticisms that are being raised by members of Congress and other politicians from both sides of the aisle, I mean, there are a lot of valid things to criticize here. But I wonder, like, what are the parts of these arguments that you're hearing that you think are central to the conversation of things that were really missed by the Biden administration, by the military? And what are parts of it that you think are more of the partisan blame game kind of politicking here? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's obviously it's a lot of partisanship, although I should say that you're, you're hearing even Republicans, you know, criticize President Trump for cutting a deal with uh, the Taliban in the first place. President Trump told us that the Taliban was going to fight terror. Secretary Pompeo told us that the Taliban was going to renounce al Qaeda. None of that has happened. None of it has happened. But it seems like, you know, the, the thrust of the, of the criticism you're getting from both sides, but particularly strong from Republicans, is that the administration understood that Afghan forces would surrender or would be defeated, you know, faster than we could exit, as Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, put it. And really, the idea that um, the White House was expressing that there was some kind of surprise to this, or like, oh, well, we didn't expect it to go this quickly, Republicans just weren't buying that. And I think that that was a fair criticism. You're also hearing, and including from Democrats, Congresswoman Jackie Speer from California, using the words intelligence failure to say somehow, you know, like all of this should have been predicted and foreseen. Well, it was actually. I mean, it happened faster than uh, I think some observers had expected, but it's not as though President Biden was being told or President Trump or President Obama before him, you know, oh, don't worry. Once the Americans leave, everything will be fine. It was always understood that once we left, you were probably going to see the country dissolve. So, it strikes me that people who are calling this a failure of intelligence, I think they're wrong there. I think that the intelligence was actually forecasting pretty accurately what was likely to happen. And what about this idea that President Biden had essentially overruled the advice of the military on executing this withdrawal this way? Uh, I know for a fact that the president's military leaders argued against this decision. We heard from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell basically saying that the president's decision was counter to what the military was telling him. I think the president felt strongly about this, obviously. He overruled his own military leaders to do it, and he owns it. Is that true? 
Well, I think it's definitely true that the military has probably over time, at least publicly, and maybe even in private briefings, I think this is true, had a more kind of optimistic or hopeful view about what could be accomplished with U.S. force there. I mean, that's not a universal statement, but there, I think there are certainly some who felt that way. And remember under President Obama, you know, they were advocating for sending more troops to try and, you know, to do the mission there. I think that it's clear that President Biden did not want to be boxed in and felt that he was going to get boxed in by the military unless he put kind of a hard date on this. And it's interesting to me how he's also kind of relying on the deal that President Trump struck as to almost say, well, my hands are tied here because, you know, the previous commander in chief cut this deal and I'm sort of kind of continuing U.S. policy. I don't think I really am persuaded that that's the case. I mean, if President Biden wanted to make the argument to reverse course, he could do that, particularly since, you know, he didn't really think that highly of President Trump's foreign policy anyway. But I think, you know, that President Biden was certainly moving in a different direction than I think historically the military has moved, which is to say, you know, pull these troops out now, draw down the presence. There were people I talked to, particularly in the intelligence community, who said, look, why don't we just leave a small residual force there? I mean, U.S. forces are not in combat with the Taliban. They're not dying right now, but they're providing a bulwark. And I think there were many in the military who did see the benefit of leaving even a small force in Afghanistan to prevent what you're seeing playing out. Out right now, and President Biden was was not going for that, and 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 his view was if you know as he said this at the White House on Monday, if we left in five years or fifteen years, it's not going to make a difference. So I think he took this approach of we need to rip the bandaid off now and go, and that's the policy, and that's what we're doing. Hmm. But also, if Biden was informed that there was a high likelihood that the Taliban were going to retake control quickly. Like, why did they leave all those weapons there or continue to pretend like they had some sense of confidence or faith in the Afghan security forces rather than just acknowledging openly that this was the likely scenario and preparing for that scenario by pulling out some of those weapons and making sure that they didn't get into the hands of the Taliban? Well, I mean, the Taliban has been taking some American weapons for years, so maybe they figured that was more of the same. But look, you're asking a really great question here, which is, you know, why didn't he take steps to sort of make the pullout not as terrible as it became? You know, I think on on one hand, you know, you saw the president trying to frankly paint a very rosy picture and to offer an assessment about the likelihood that the Afghan forces would stand up that was very much not in keeping with the advice he seems to have been getting, at least from his intelligence agencies. So when the president does that, is he putting spin on things? Is he not understanding what he's hearing? Um, Is he misleading the public because he doesn't want to, you know, kind of own the disaster or make it seem as dire? I don't know. I suspect we'll, we'll find that out. So now that the U.S. is essentially going to be dealing with an Afghanistan that is run by the Taliban, how does that change our national security risks as a country? I think it arguably increases them significantly. I mean, we are the United States is putting a big bet on the Taliban acting as I guess what we would call in relative terms a responsible actor, which is to say not allowing Afghanistan to become a safe haven for terrorist groups the way it was before the September 11th attacks. 
Whether they will make good on that commitment remains to be seen. And I think that's really the, the, the big one big question. We don't have a force in Afghanistan right now. We don't have an embassy in Afghanistan right now, which means we're not, we don't have CIA personnel on the ground running spies, running agents. We're going to have a really hard time collecting intelligence from within the country. We're going to have to rely on satellite imagery, on communications intercepts. We're going to try and do this counterterrorism mission from afar. That's mm-hmm. going to be really hard. So really, the future of Afghanistan and our security there and and potential threats to us really rests with, I think, what the Taliban decides to do and how aggressive the United States is going to be in countering any threats. Like if we see terrorist camps rebuilding in portions of Afghanistan, do we go in and take them out? Do we bomb them? Do we send in special operations forces uh, to kind of get in and get out? I think you could expect that the Biden administration would do that, and they're betting that the Taliban knows they would and will potentially take steps to make sure that those terrorist groups don't set up base there. But we're going to have to see what happens. I also want to talk a little bit more about the Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani, who essentially fled the country over the weekend. Even hearing President Biden talk about President Ghani's departure, I feel like you could sense some animosity there or frustration or disappointment that this president did not stay in place to try to lead his country. And in fact, that was part of Biden's argument for, you know, look, if the Afghans are not going to do the work to try to keep their country intact, like, why are we going to stay there? But I wonder, like, what role does Ghani play in this? And also, where is he? Like, what do we know about the circumstances under which he fled and why he is not in the country? I'm not sure where he is right now. I believe I've seen reports that he's in a neighboring country. Um, Yeah, the anger from President Biden was palpable against, you know, Ghani and by extension, the political leadership of Afghanistan, who he sees as essentially abandoning the country. Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed sometime without trying to fight. Again, this isn't the category of things that we really need to know more about, but I find it very telling uh, that he left as quickly as he did. I mean, it almost felt negotiated uh, in a way, and I'm not saying that it was, but we've seen reports, I should say, of provincial officials striking deals with the Taliban in advance of them coming into their cities and basically just handing over the keys. This, though, wow. is really a question, too, for the White House. I mean, the you know the leader-to-leader communication, did we not understand that he was going to pack up and go, or did we know? If we had a sense that he was going to leave this quickly, that might have been a tell for us because once the president of Afghanistan left, I mean, that was the signal that effectively the the game was over, that the Taliban was going to face no real resistance when they came into Kabul. But I should say, too, you know, this kind of dim view that President Biden and others have of Ashraf Ghani, I mean, this really goes, I think, for a lot of the political class of Afghanistan over the years. I mean, you're talking about a government where corruption has been endemic. And I think, you know, a generation of U.S. officials have just been very clear-eyed and skeptical about their ability to to, to maintain a country absent, you know, U.S. presence and assistance. Um, So in that sense, I don't know that anybody had a lot of hopes that Ghani was going to try and, you know, hold down the fort and fight to the bitter end. But what I also find, you know... (laughs) so remarkable about this moment is that it's almost like it's it's so hard for us as Americans to believe that an American president would knowingly walk away from a country understanding that it was just going to descend into chaos hmm. and be overtaken by, you know, militant fundamentalists. 
But that's what happened. I mean, he knew that this would occur. I think it's hard for a lot of Americans to swallow this right now, the idea that knowing how likely it was that things would go very badly, that he still made the decision to go. But he's been very frank about that in his comments. And it's just, it's, it's so stunning for me to see, I think, because it's so at odds with what three successive American presidents have told us there, which is that... You know, they were hopeful about the mission. You know, we're trying to build stability. We're trying to get the government to a place where it can stand on its own. I mean, what we're finding now is that for years, people have privately understood that that was not likely to be the case. And, you know, it's just it's, it's striking to hear an American president basically say, you know, come on, quit kidding yourself like we're going. And he has stuck by that and he owns that decision. I don't think that he'll suffer a great political fallout from it because I think most Americans are ready to leave too, frankly. Um, But this is going to be a part of Joe Biden's legacy. I wonder whether or not in his desire to be seen as decisive, he made some significant tactical errors in the way that we pulled out and whether that could have been ameliorated. I mean, if we are going to leave potentially tens of thousands of Afghans and their families behind, let's be very clear, the ones who helped us as interpreters, you know, or who are our intelligence assets, those people are very likely going to be killed. And that is going to be a stain on this country, and it is going to make it much more difficult to try to recruit that kind of assistance when we have to go into countries in the future. That is also something that Joe Biden is going to have to own. And hopefully it won't come to that, and the American military can get these people out of the airport. Uh, but there is a real risk here to, you know, not just to these individuals, but to our standing going forward that could do real damage to our ability to find friends in places where we need them around the world. Shane Harris covers national security for The Post. Rena Flores produced this story. On Tuesday, the Biden administration froze billions of dollars in Afghan reserves. It's an attempt to limit the Taliban's access to money. After the break, we'll hear from Afghanistan's first female ambassador to the U.S. on what it's like to watch her country fall back under Taliban control. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. While people in Washington argue over who's to blame, the stakes for the people in Afghanistan get higher and higher. Around the world, Afghans are watching in horror as the Taliban takes over their country. I feel sick, physically, mentally, emotionally. This is Roya Rahmani. In 2018, she became Afghanistan's first female ambassador to the U.S., and she held that position until just a few weeks ago. Her appointment signaled a new era for progress in Afghanistan. 
But now diplomacy in and around her country has crumbled. And she blames top Afghan officials for silently abandoning their posts. In particular, President Ashraf Ghani. When President Ghani came to power and he started appointing young people, he brought people from outside and empowered them and he gave them positions and he allowed them to do things. It was a huge moment of hope, especially that he really appointed and empowered many women. That, that was something that we were, that gave us so much energy and also like endowed us with this sense of responsibility. But then how it all unraveled, the level of corruption and to the extent that it was exercised at the highest power and tolerated, We watched all of that. Ambassador Rahmani spoke with producer Arjun Singh about what she sees as complete failure on all levels of leadership in Afghanistan. When President Biden just gave a statement and he he kept repeating that if the Afghan security forces are not fighting for their country, why should the American forces do? It is true and not so true at the same time, because the Afghan security forces would fight. The leadership told them not to. In military, there's a chain of command, number one. Number two, they were deprived of leadership, of equipment, of ammunition, of food that would enable them to fight. President Biden has doubled down on this decision to leave, saying that the U.S. can't have a permanent military presence in Afghanistan. He's taken to calling the military operations there a, quote, forever war. But I want I want to know if you think that there was a third way option that was there. Was there a way for the U.S. military to leave eventually, but for a stable Afghan government to maintain stability in the country? Absolutely. There was definitely a third option. Definitely. The international community could have provided the negotiating team a draft settlement, ask them to fill it out in a day or two, a week at max, work it out, agree to it, then take it to Kabul, be there to enforce it, get a number of UN peacekeepers to monitor it, and then it would have been a whole different scene. There could have been a new transitional government, inclusive of all of those. It wouldn't have been perfect. Maybe there would would have been some militias and some fighting and this and that, but it it wouldn't have been the collapse. It wouldn't have been this. And then the U.S. troops could have come out. So, yes, there was definitely a third option. There was always a third option. It just needed trying some new strategies, being more forceful, more engaged, putting a little more energy and attention now in order to save yourself for revisiting it and putting even more resources and energy in the future. 
Back in 2018, Rahmani's appointment as ambassador signified hope for the future of Afghanistan and Afghan women. But now she says that she will not return to her home country because she's worried that she'll be killed. For the women and girls who are still trapped there, she says that they are in real danger. Women are extremely worried. They are very concerned. They are almost accepting that they won't have the same rights and liberties that they have been enjoying and building and claiming over the past 20 years. They also know that they are always the ones to suffer the most under any crisis. They do not have political, financial, and social capital, so their rights are always used as a bargaining chip in any political discussion. So under the circumstances, in order to survive, I I see their messages saying, Let's hope we can work with them. Let's hope that they will be reasonable. Let's hope that that we would be able to secure most of our gains that we have had. But they are very worried. Many of them are looking for a way out. The news today from Kabul was that women are saying to each other not to come out of their houses. The news was that the streets of Kabul are vacated from its women, that they have already gone somehow in hiding and somewhat we have become invisible. Roya Rahmani is a former Afghan ambassador to the U.S. Arjun Singh and Reni Svarnovsky produced this story. To hear more of Arjun's conversation with the ambassador, tune in to the Post's politics podcast, Can He Do That? You'll hear more of her insights, as well as what America's disastrous pullout could mean for Biden's presidency. That episode drops on Thursday. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernovsky. As the withdrawal in Afghanistan continues, we want to hear from veterans or anyone who made sacrifices for the Afghan war effort. Whether you're American or Afghan, whether you served in the coalition, or if you had friends or family who did, we want to know your thoughts. What do you feel like you sacrificed in the war? And how do you feel about that sacrifice now? Send us your responses, or even better, record a voice memo. Email that to postreports at washpost.com. We look forward to hearing from you. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.